Hello and welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. Last time we spent a great deal of time talking about the whole business of what the Trojan War would have looked like to the Trojans. Um, we looked at the province of Troy and where exactly the Trojan city is most likely located, all the way from its origins as this tiny little city in the backwoods of nowhere, predating many of the other ancient cities of the time and very much a contemporary of ancient Egypt and ancient Babylon in its own right, to its development as the far-flung province of Walusa, uh, just off the uh, Hittite Empire, all the way to its development in the archaeological excavations of Hisarlik. Um, today we are flipping the script, though. We are going to look not at the Trojan side, or at least what would have been the Trojan side, since it's clear that Homer only had a fairly, you know, imperfect understanding of what was actually going on with the Trojans during what would have been the Trojan War. Um, today we look instead at the Achaeans, the Greeks. Um, so... Today we are focusing especially on this period right in here. We're going to be sort of looking at the history of the Greeks as Homer would have understood it, both as a representative and a member of this archaic period right here. Homer is likely writing around the 7th or 8th centuries BC about the period right over here. Um, so let's take a look at this timeline, first of all, because I find it extremely useful and extremely helpful, and I am so glad I found it for my mythology class, and you will be subjected to it as well. Um, this is the whole ancient Greek timeline here, and actually has a pretty surprising breadth to it, what with the fact that it starts in 3200 BCE with the Cycladic, or the Cycladic uh, civilization, and extends all the way to the Ottoman Empire, which very much kind of peters out around the 19th century um so this is basically what greece is doing for the duration of greece being a thing in any form um so we should note first off and especially that our sort of prehistorical greece or at least really ancient greece greece before the dark age greece before the trojan war greece before classical greece all that stuff um, this is a Greece very much divided into three competing groups, um, namely the Cycladics, and the Cycladics, you'll notice, uh, this map down here, which you probably can't see very well, depending on the resolution of your screen, if you're watching this on a phone, God help you, I use way too many small, uh, captions, um, but the Cycladics are here in yellow. The Cycladics are primarily identified with these islands, um, which are typically understood to surround the island of Delos. Um, which is the island where Apollo's major temple is set up later on. Um, the Cycladics are a pretty rough-and-tumble civilization. They seem to be fairly disorganized, and they don't have nearly the sort of power that we're going to see coming from the Minoans and the Mycenaeans a little bit later. Um, the Minoans are the folks on Crete. Again, they're in green down here on this little map here. Um... The Minoans are one of the most advanced civilizations of this period, especially compared to the Cycladics. Um, but it's also pretty obvious that the Minoans and the Cycladics are kind of fighting against each other, are, are very much competitors for territory in this burgeoning Greek world. Um, and in fact, numerous sort of myths and legends surrounding the Mycenaeans, the Cycladics, and the Minoans frequently pose the Minoans as aggressors. Um, on the one hand, the Minoans are probably the origin of many of the distinctly Greek elements of Greek mythology, which, you know, that's a sort of 
major linguistic business that we'll like touch on a little bit later, but probably won't get into very deeply in our discussion today. Um, but they do sort of present themselves as aggressors. You'll see many myths like the legend of Theseus and the Minotaur um, kind of present the Minoans as though they're the bad guys who are, you know, trying to take over perfectly nice cities like Athens here on the, uh, the Greek uh, mainland. Um, and therefore, you know, those guys are jerks. And it's totally right for Theseus to, like, beat up the Minotaur and then, you know, Minos to come to a bad end and stuff. Um, but notice that by Homer's day, you know, Crete is part of the whole Mycenaean process. Like, nobody has a problem with Idomeneus showing up and helping out, um, despite the fact that he's coming from Crete. Um, Odysseus and Athena both disguise themselves as people from Crete on a regular basis because it's a big island and it's got a lot of people and it would explain why you are hanging around traveling from place to place. Um... The Mycenaeans, however, those are the ones that we're the most familiar with. Those are the ones that are on the mainland of Greece, on the Greek uh, peninsula. Um, that includes Sparta, like what Menelaus is doing, and of course Mycenae, where Agamemnon is holding court and apparently is running the whole show. Um, so these three sort of competing civilizations and competing structures are the three sort of distinct cultural identities we see making up the peoples of Greece at this period in time. The Kaikladics are having a rough time of it, as we'll talk about, and they're frequently getting beaten up by the Minoans and later the Mycenaeans. Um, these are the people who the Mycenaeans have no problem with, like, just showing up on their islands and beating the crap out of them and taking all that crap, because, as we talked about in the Odyssey, the Mycenaeans are basically pirates a lot of the time. Um, the Minoans are aggressors with a fairly organized and fairly sophisticated civilization who present themselves as a threat frequently to both the fairly fly-by-night Mycenaeans and also to the, you know, extremely disorganized Kaikladics. Um, so let's take a look at these distinct cultures as we, you know, sort of tear all this apart. Um, so let's look first at the map, get a little closer in, because again, that map is kind of garbage. Um, so again, here's the Aegean Sea. We talked about this exact same map in our Hittite discussion last time, um, so I don't want to dwell too much on it. Again, the Kaikladics are primarily these islands surrounding Delos. Crete is over here with Knossos, its capital. And over on the Mycenaean Peninsula, we have, again, Corinth, Mycenae, Sparta, Athens, Thebes, all major players, um, both in sending people to the, the Trojan War and being major players in the historic events leading up to it and having their own sort of major traditions and so on and so forth. And likewise, over here, we have Asia Minor, including Troy um, and major cities along the, along the coast, this being the Anatolia that the Hittites are going to be basically running by the time that the uh, Trojan War actually happens. But I also want to give us a little bit more detail about this. Like, don't get overwhelmed. I don't expect you to know every single, like, location on this particular map. Um, but I do want to stress that from the ancient perspective, every one of these islands had an identity, had myths associated with it. Um, all the mainland, as much as we are emphasizing certain major cities like Corinth, like Thebes, like Sparta, like Mycenae, so on and so forth, also had lots of other cities, lots of other city-states and lots of other sort of cultures that, um, you know, revolved around it and had sort of their own uh identity in their own right so we're going to spend a lot of time talking about say corinth or say pylos because there are actually really important archaeological finds to be found there um so keep in mind this map is in fact on the powerpoint presentation which is on the canvas page feel free to refer to it as we go through our discussion today 
Um, since again, we'll be talking about a lot of these kind of weird little towns and cities when they prove to, you know, survive longer than a lot of the other places that seem to be more major because they're not getting like ripped off and destroyed in order to build new cities and stuff. Um, so just keep that in your back pocket here. But now let's talk about the cultures. Um, so first let's look at the Kykladics because they are undoubtedly the oldest cultural like force in Greece or at least the one with the you know oldest cultural identity. Um, but they're also the most disorganized and sort of like troubled as far as these go. Um, one of the most distinct characteristics of Kykladic art are these little figurines. Um, most of them, like there are tons of these where they're just like this random figure, usually a female figure. Notice the very distinct breasts uh, shown here with arms crossed across the torso, um, usually right arm above or below left arm like there are there's an entire little archaeological cottage industry built around sort of recovering and identifying these kykladic figurines and there are like i said tons of them um and they basically define the kykladic period the entire time the kykladics are a thing um again like the the dating i have here is the the left picture which is from the national archaeological museum of athens um, this dates widely from 2800 to 2200 or to 2000 BCE. Um, so again, these are very old in some cases, but they're also a tradition that goes on for close to a thousand years among these Kykladic groups. Now, some of them are more sophisticated, like we do get these figurines, which, you know, have like playing instruments. The harp player is especially noteworthy because it is probably one of the most sophisticated works that the Kykladic, or that we've recovered from the Kykladics, at least intact. Um, but nonetheless, notice that it is very rough all the same compared to some of the stuff that we'll be seeing later on in this lecture. Likewise, Kykladic pottery is also really rough. Um, and the suggestion here is that that's because on these Kykladic islands, there really isn't a lot of good clay to work with. Like, it is inferior materials compared to what you will find on Crete or on the, the Greek peninsula. Um, so the Kykladics are doing the best they can with what they've got. But the fact of the matter is, it is not great. Um, more, like, there are way more uh, representatives of this very simple pot with the sort of, like, kind of rough geometric-ish design uh, made out of this terracotta over here on the left. The one on the right is, again, a uniquely complicated and sophisticated uh, work of pottery here. Um, again, kind of typical of the Kykladics. The Kykladics have a lot of these sort of complex works of pottery in order to um, perform multiple offerings at the same time. Again, you'll notice that, like, there's all these little mouths, so you can, like, pour a libation into each one of them, um, presumably for different gods or deities or whoever. Um, at any rate, like, both of these are considerably newer than most of those figurines that we talked about in the last slide. Again, these are dating to 2300 and later um, BC. Uh, but nonetheless, again, these tend to be really fragile. Not many works like this tend to survive and most of these are also inferior clay the like the bottoms are frequently falling out they're frequently breaking um it's really tough to keep them together and this is yet another example of the long history of technologically inferior civilizations getting the crap kicked out of them and being unable to develop due to not just technologically in, or technological inferiority 
but also the inferiority of resources. In the world stage, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That's just the way it goes. Um, so let's move on from the Kykladics. Like, again, very rough, very tough living as far as this is concerned. Not a whole lot of sophistication because the materials really weren't up to snuff compared to their competitors. By contrast, the Minoans have a much more sophisticated sort of culture and, like, artistic legacy. Um, this is a bull-leaping fresco found in Knossos, the capital of Crete. Um, this is largely reconstructed. Like, you'll notice that there are all these little patchy places. Those are actually the thing that is painted. Everything else, all of this, like, empty space that isn't all bumpy, that's artistic reconstruction. People sort of filling in the gaps. Um, of what this must have looked like once upon a time. Um, so keep in mind, this is not nearly as well-preserved as it seems to be here, but I just kind of wanted to give you an idea of what it would look like in theory as much as what it actually looks like in fact. Um, the Minoans clearly had a great deal of sophistication as far as their art depiction is concerned, as far as their ability to acquire colorful paints, um, like as far as their interest in depicting these artworks on walls or on frescoes in this way. Um, something that the Kykladics really do not have any evidence of doing, either because they didn't have the materials or because the materials they used did not survive the lengthy process by which art becomes archaeology. Um, this is admittedly much newer than all the Kykladic stuff that we've seen. This dates to about 1450 BCE, um, and is, again, considerably newer. You'll notice that the depiction here is of a person leaping over a bull. Like, theoretically, you would have this bull charging at someone, and then, like, this person would grab the bull by the horns and vault over it. Like, this was apparently a thing that Minoans did for fun. You will actually see a lot of depictions in Minoic art, Minoan artwork of this whole bull leaping process, and it was a weirdly prevalent part of their culture. Probably connected to why bulls are such an important part of, like, Minoan and Greek culture generally. Like, there are a weirdly large number of myths dealing with extremely sexy cows and or bulls, dealing with, like, bulls as, you know, objects of, you know, theft or, uh, like, these important valuable objects. Like, uh, Heracles has to steal the cattle of Geryon. There's, you know, this bull that mates with Pasiphae and makes the Minotaur. Like, you'll notice in the Iliad and the Odyssey, all the time, bulls are, like, the first thing you sacrifice to the gods when you're having a particularly important occasion. Um, this is a big deal to the Greeks for some reason, and has been for a long, long, long time, even before the Trojan War breaks out. Um, you'll also notice, though, that Minoan pottery is way more sophisticated than the Kykladics as a rule. Um, the Minoans love to decorate their pottery, especially with, like, ocean scenes. Like, here we've got this big octopus dude. Like, I love the octopus dude. This is an awesome, uh, pot as they go. Um... You'll also notice that the pottery is sophisticated enough that they can actually do relief work on the clay itself, like carve details and images into the clay, the way that you can see here on the, the harvester vase, both of which date to about 1500 BCE. Um, like, notice that the Minoans are interested in sort of portraying scenes on their pottery, something that the Kykladics are pretty much unable to do due to, again, the sort of inferior materials that they're working with and presumably the lack of technology accompanying that. Um, 
you'll see that both the Minoans and the Mycenaeans like doing this. And this is definitely going to set the stage for some pretty sophisticated artwork on Greek pottery to come. Um, now, I should mention, like, in advance, just to warn you, we're going to look at a lot of pots over the course of this lecture, because these are probably the most likely to survive amongst various artworks and creations of the Greeks. Um, you know, unlike, say, painted artwork or even sculpture to some degree, which is usually exposed to the elements and therefore, you know, gets eaten away over the years. Um, plus, it was apparently not as big a deal in these very early stages of Greek culture as it would be in the classical ages. Um, the pots survive when paintings and figurines and other things of that nature just don't. Um, so keep in mind, this is not like me with a pot fetish. In fact, I, you know, would probably be bored by this discussion of all of these vases and amphorae and everything else that we're going to be talking about today. The fact of the matter is, though, this is the best way to see what a culture's priorities were a lot of the time. What did they put on their pots? Um, because, you know, otherwise it didn't survive. Um, the other thing that you'll notice is there's a lot of discussion of what has been buried with people. Um, again, we focused a lot on that in the Hittite lectures because that was often the only, you know, cultural evidence we had. Here I've decided to sort of stay away from that because it tends to be the same stuff over and over. Rings, you know, items of wealth as well as, like, weapons a lot of the time. Um, plus... The pots are a consistent record where the weapons and, and jewelry and stuff are not. Everybody needs pots because you need to be able to carry liquids from place to place. And as a consequence, every culture will make pottery in some fashion or another. Um, whereas weapons, while they're super important and usually pretty durable in the age of the Minoans, usually because they're made of bronze, as we get closer and closer to the Iron Age, you will find that fewer weapons survive because iron is actually way less resistant to the elements over time. Bronze just turns that lovely green color like the Statue of Liberty... Iron corrodes, rusts, and then just, like, gets totally destroyed so that there's nothing left. Um, so as a consequence, the pots are, in fact, the best way to track the development of the civilization, to show the differences between the various cultures as they develop, and to sort of get at Greek culture in general. Especially because Greek pottery, in as we approach the Classical Age, gets really sophisticated and really detailed. Um, so showing that development is a big part of what we're doing today. Um, however, that isn't the only thing we're going with. I also want to sort of emphasize the actual business of shipbuilding. Um, a number of different ships have been recovered uh, from the Mediterranean, like ancient ships of various types. Um, and a number of scholars have devoted their efforts to reconstructing these ships. So notice, like, here is a depiction of one of the ships in the Minoan flotilla fresco, um, and it has very much been reconstructed by this Camos Conservancy. Again, archaeologists trying desperately to get money from people by doing elaborate things like building a modern-day, totally working Minoan uh, trireme. Um, we should note, though, that this is roughly what we're looking, what we're talking about when we're talking about Greek ships traveling across the Aegean Sea. Um, as much as there are a lot of ships happen, or that sort of like wander around the Mediterranean world, especially later in the Dark Ages, we'll talk about that. Um, and many of those ships are in fact more elaborate, more sophisticated, with lots more storage space. That actually has very little to do with the Greeks in many cases. 
Um, that's largely the other sort of trading communities, especially the Phoenicians uh, in the back half of like the Dark Ages and into the Archaic period. Um, typically, when we're talking about what would the Greeks have taken to get to Troy in the 13th century BCE, this is the sort of thing we're talking about. And notice, this is not like a very large boat. There's virtually no storage space. There's room for a fairly large crew, but they're going to have to restock frequently. Hence, Odysseus stopping off all the time in order to pick up more swag from various islands. In fact, Homer's probably not even working with a fairly realistic notion of what boats and boating would have looked like in the 13th century. He's probably assuming an archaic perspective, but we'll come back to that. Suffice it to say that I did want to give you a sense, though. This is what boats in the, the Greek, uh, like pre-archaic, pre-dark age period would have looked like. This is what Homer is probably assuming or working with, at least to some degree, when he's talking about what the Trojan War is going to look like and what thousand ships got launched due to the face of Helen. Um, so just keep that in mind and feel free to check out Kamos Conservancy if you want to see more detail about their project there. Um, now let's take a look at the Mycenaeans, because again, that's kind of our major focus here. They are the direct inheritors of you know, Agamemnon and all the Greeks who show up at Troy. And you'll notice that Mycenaean art is pretty dependent on Minoan art. They've even got their own octopus base. Hooray! Um, yeah, it's very clear that Mycenaean art sort of is less sophisticated than Minoan art, but is also very much cribbing off of the Minoan uh, models and findings. Um, it's very obvious that the Mycenaeans do have some of their own priorities and do have some of their own interests, uh, but also are very much informed and indebted to the Minoans who probably have a more sophisticated civilization earlier than the Mycenaeans actually do, even though they take it in their own direction. Likewise, you can see that these two frescoes from Mycenaean art depict a lot of chariot action. In fact, so much chariot action that you'll notice that these guys aren't actually killing anyone. Um, they're just riding around like dudes do, or in this case, like ladies do, apparently. Who knew that ladies could ride in chariots? Um, the ancient world is a surprising and shocking place. You would think, based on just the Iliad and the Odyssey alone, that women are incapable of riding in a chariot. And yet here are two women, wonder what they're up to, riding in this chariot all by themselves. Um... But notice the takeaway here is that the Mycenaeans do have a much more sophisticated, say, chariot and road structure culture than even the Minoans do, because it's kind of a bigger area with a lot more spread out territory. Chariots are much more useful in that situation. Um, but also, this is a priority of this time. This is something that you would have seen regularly in the Bronze Age amongst the Mycenaeans. Um, Put a pin in that, we will come back to that particular detail as we go along. Um, also, you've seen this picture before. This is the artist's reconstruction of the Megaron at Pylos. This is very typical of Mycenaean architecture. Again, the Megaron palace structure, these big, giant, like, palace-ish rooms where presumably entire communities would meet and hang out and do stuff together. Um, this is very typical of the Mycenaean world. We find these Megarons at Pylos. We find them at Mycenae. Again, we've got the sort of weird, thin mini one at Hisserlik itself. Um, this is clearly the major feature of the, of the Bronze Age world, and you will even find a few of them on Crete. They are sort of secondary to the Mycenaeans. This is apparently a Mycenaean predominant 
uh, feature of their architecture and of their culture. Um, I should also emphasize, though, that the Minoans and the Mycenaeans do have a writing system. Again, like, there is, it's pretty rough, and we can't even translate at this point or decipher whatever Minoan A is, or uh, Linear A, that's what this tablet from Crete back in 1500 BCE is actually doing. Um, but we have managed to decipher our way through Linear B, because it's a little closer to our own understanding of Greek. Um, you'll notice that both writing systems are kind of pictographic, kind of, I, like... It's weird. It's kind of a cross between the cuneiform system that we saw with the Hittites and, you know, other cultures from, like, the Semitic background deriving from the Babylonians. Um, but it's also a little bit hieroglyphic-ish, the way that you might expect from, you know, a culture heavily influenced by the Egyptians, which in all likelihood the Minoans had hung out with the Egyptians. Um, most scholars also pretty firmly agree that Linear A is definitely the inspiration for Linear B. The Mycenaeans are definitely copying off the Minoans' notes here and establishing their writing system after the Minoans have established theirs. Um, but again, since the Mycenaeans will lead us into modern-day Greek in some ways, we have managed to interpret it. And importantly, one of the things that scholars have found from examinations of Linear B writings, like this tablet here, which you've got the little transcription down here, and also this is what's on the other side, because we're less interested in pictures than words as far as the archaeological community is concerned, um, one of the things that the archaeologists have noticed is that the Mycenaeans apparently have a pretty sophisticated government system that does not rely on predominant kingship. In fact, there's a pretty egalitarian system in Mycenaean writing. Um, something very much out of sync with what Homer describes in the Odyssey and in the Iliad, where, you know, it's Agamemnon and Odysseus or die. Um, you'll also notice that those big Megaron structures that we emphasized as a part of uh, Mycenaean culture, very much open to like big debates between many different interlocutors, like huge community meetings, something approximating like a town hall meeting today. Um, this apparently was the way that the Mycenaeans went about their business once upon a time. And it's also reinforced by the fact that anytime that you find a Mycenaean tomb, um, you will typically find that all the dead are buried together. Mass graves, mass burials, not the cremations that we would expect based on what Homer was talking about. Instead, everybody is buried together. If there are, in fact, major class distinctions or hierarchies, they're typically not that carefully observed. Even into the Dark Ages, we see a number of different burial plots with mass inhumation rather than mass cremation or individual sort of, like, like, uh, notoriety, though it does also happen, just more rarely. Um, so again, the picture that we're getting from the sort of ancient Greek world, like ancient ancient Greek world, for lack of a better way of distinguishing the pre-Dark Age world from the post-Dark Age ancient Greek world, again, I know it's hard to keep track, do try and keep your eye on the prize here, um, and do try to keep these distinctions separate that are going to get only worse as we go along. Um, it is obvious that what Homer thought the culture looked like probably looked very different in practice based on what limited and scanty evidence we have. Again, it's kind of hard to put together archaeologically a town hall meeting because, you know, everybody leaves um, and the minutes aren't necessarily that easy to find. But as close as we have, this it's indicating that it is more town hall than kingship 
We do not have a purely centralized bureaucracy governing large groups of people like we do over in Babylon or in uh, Hattusa. Instead, we have, again, lots of people coming together and deciding things for themselves, and these are effectively minutes, not dictates or laws or, you know, decrees. Um, so let's look back at our Greek timeline, because, again, we're getting kind of confused here. Um, let's emphasize this was, again, the ancient, ancient Greek world, pre-Dark Ages, um, and we should emphasize especially that that stuff that we're talking about at the end there, linear A and B, the, you know, sophisticated pottery from the Minoans and Mycenaeans, these would have been contemporaneous with the supposed date of the Trojan War. If the Trojan War went down, and again, we have lots of reasons why it may not have, um, this is the sort of culture that would have been engaged in it. Those are the boats that they would have used, those are the pots they would have carried, those are the cultural priorities they would have had. And again, they are frequently out of sync with what Homer describes in the ancient Greek world. Um, but that's because, again, Homer's writing over here. If this is the pre-Dark Age world, Homer is coming out of the Dark Ages and writing in likely the 8th or 7th centuries, so well after the Trojan War would have actually happened. So let's turn our attention from, again, the pre-Dark Age world of the Greeks to this dark age and then the archaic world the one that homer himself would have lived in we will get around to talking about the classical greek world and the hellenistic greek world probably in our next lecture um as well as what happens when the romans take over the place not so much the byzantines and the ottomans that's pretty well outside of our scope in this class um, but we will talk about the rest of these periods as well. So again, do try and keep our cultures distinct, Kykladics versus Minoans versus Mycenaeans. Do recognize that there's a major difference between the pre-Dark Age world where the Trojan War likely would have happened and the post-Dark Age world, which is where Homer is writing about it. Um, so with that in mind, let's look at the Dark Ages. And... Again, I should emphasize, like we talked about last time in our discussion about Hattusa and the Hittites and Walusa, um, nobody knows why the Bronze Age collapsed. They just know that it did. Um, there are a lot of potential reasons for it. A lot of people do have some like limited writing talking about you know, invaders from the sea or other potentially destructive catastrophes. Uh, but generally speaking, we don't know why the Bronze Age collapsed. We just know that it did. And you'll notice that in the direct fallout after the Bronze Age collapse, the sophistication of the art and of the pottery and of the various materials that are being produced is way decreased. Instead of the big elaborate pots that we saw with the octopuses on them or the fancy reliefs, um, here we have a return to the old Kykladic kind of forms. Um, a little bit, or considerably more sophisticated, way more, way larger, way, you know, more detailed than the Kykladics were. Um, but this proto-geometric amphora here, again, lacks all the artistic work that we've come to associate with Greek pottery at this point in time. Again, this is what's usually called proto-geometric. Um, in reference to the geometric pottery that is going to be developed uh, later as the Archaic period is really getting underway. Um, in fact, the most sophisticated work from the Greek Dark Ages that anyone has identified from an archaeological site, like, period, is this piece over here, the Lepkondi centaur. Um, there are a couple of things to sort of distinguish the centaur. 
Namely, notice that it has this really detailed face and like even the ears and the eyes and the nose are all set apart. Like that's stuff that we haven't seen from any sculpture. Definitely not the Kykladic figurines. Um, it's also heavily suggested by certain archaeologists that this may be a depiction of Chiron, the centaur who trained uh, Achilles and also the centaur who appears in a lot of important Greek mythology. Um, why do they think that this particular centaur is Chiron? Well, anytime that anyone depicts a centaur, we immediately assume it's Chiron unless we have good reason not to. Um, but also there's this little gash over here in the centaur's knee, which according to Apollodorus, um, Heracles wounded Chiron at one point during his epic adventures. He got drunk and a little rowdy with some other centaurs and then beat the crap out of a bunch of centaurs and in the front process accidentally shot Chiron. Um, the archaeologists in question are arguing that that gash there is deliberate and that it in fact indicates that this is in fact a reference to myth, in which case this might be the earliest artistic representation of a myth um, that we know of, or at least a myth that we know of, in Greek culture period. Uh, this centaur dates back to 900 BC, which you'll notice is at the tail end of the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages extending from like 1100 BC to about 800. Um, but nonetheless, the uh, suggestion here is that we are moving. Um, we are going from a culture that was more interested in sort of general day-to-day -day activities, threshing wheat and leaping over bulls, apparently, um, random stuff that you encounter in the ocean, to a culture that does in fact have a sophisticated mythic tradition and a culture that sort of celebrates that mythic tradition with its art, literature, etc. Um, I should emphasize that it's during the Greek Dark Ages that a lot of things change for the Greeks. Uh, much as we cannot really track those changes in so far as there's like detailed historical evidence, again, writing all that linear A and B has basically vanished off the face of the earth at this point. Um, there are very few settlements where any writing has been discovered during this Bronze Age collapse, like even outside of the ancient Greek world. Um, despite that, we know based on the sort of materials that are getting around and the exchanges that are happening, that trade is getting more and more robust during this period. Again, the Phoenicians show up and we start finding pots in wrong places all over the Mediterranean world, um, obviously demonstrating that there are exchanges between the Greek world and the world of Anatolia and the African world, um, especially Egypt and North Africa. Um, all of this suggests that while you know the technological sophistication may have decreased, at least as far as the archaeological record is concerned, nonetheless, there is a sophistication to the culture, to the trade routes, and to the development of a lot of these sorts of untrackable cultural uh, indicators. And again, that includes the epic tradition. Uh, remember that Homer isn't the first person to tell the story of the Iliad and the Odyssey. He's just the first person to write it down, if person he is. Um, the epic tradition likely developed in these Dark Ages. Again, because you'll notice that as we proceed through this lecture, we're going to see more and more artistic evidence celebrating these epic stories, celebrating these myths, um, and developing them in ways that simply did not appear before the Greek Dark Ages. So the stories seem to be getting richer, even while the pottery and the technology and the sophistication of the, the detail on these things is getting weaker. 
Likewise, the Bronze Age is over. The Iron Age has begun. So again, we're not going to see a whole heck of a lot of weapons unless they are, in fact, like throwbacks to the old bronze armor of yesteryear which some people are in fact doing because there were like geeky greeks even back in you know the greek dark ages um but increasingly we're going to find evidence of iron without actually being able to find the iron implements itself because again rust destruction iron doesn't stand up to age nearly as well as bronze does um, so the Dark Ages are less dark than people tend to think. Like, again, anytime that somebody calls anything a Dark Age, you can bet that there are a bunch of scholars who are like, wait, look at all these cool things! And then it'll get complicated. Um, I should also just emphasize, for the record, this is not the same as the Dark Ages generally. Like, when people just say the Dark Ages, they're usually referring to the European world after the fall of the Roman Empire. We are referring to the Greek Dark Ages, the Bronze Dark Ages, like between the Bronze Age collapse and the Iron Age. Um, the archaic period in Greek history as we are going to be talking about it. Um, don't get the two confused. Again, I know that there's a lot to keep track of here, and I'm probably giving you way more history than any of you expected in a class on Troy and the Trojan War, but it is important for context, and there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on under the hood, and really, this is kind of what this class is all about. Um, we, our goal here is not just to read Homer, although that is really important, but to also contextualize him, understand what the deal is here. Um, understanding how all this fits together is going to be an important prerequisite for getting the basic facts right when it comes to writing a paper about what Homer is, like what he's doing, how he relates to the world that he is writing about, and so on and so forth. Um, so again, this is before Homer. This is in the period between the Trojan War as it likely as it likely would have happened or when it likely would have happened and the rise of Homer uh, the development of writing again again probably inherited from the Phoenicians and beyond um, so that's all I got for the Greek Dark Ages although that probably was more than enough let's move on to the archaic period because this is where things really start to develop and the Greek civilization and society really start to take form um, so notice, sort of in the wake of that proto-geometric art, the very simplistic designs that were kind of geometric and the fairly simplistic uh, vase structure that we saw from that amphora back there. Um, P.S. When I say amphora, like I'll try and highlight this every time I bring up a new weird vase name. Um, but anytime we're talking about an amphora, we're talking about something for carrying stuff. Um, you'll notice that they predominant or they predominantly have like really impressive handles or you know are designed for easy pouring in and out like wide tops with a narrower bottom to keep the whatever inside um, amphora are usually referring to wine carrying um, this is how you would get wine from point a to point b either on a ship or by like moving it from the wine press to a house or whatever um and then this is what you would pour into a smaller vessel when you are, in fact, like serving wine at some big party or something. Um, so amphoras, you're going to see a lot. And especially you'll see amphoras because amphoras like decorations because they're party stuff. It's like your fine china at home. You only break it out on special occasions and you want everybody to look at how awesome your amphorae are. Um, when you are pouring this stuff, you want everyone to be like, wow, that's a really cool picture that you have on your amphora. So, yeah, keep that in mind. I am sort of cherry picking the coolest art here um, because a lot of it really isn't decorated as well. Um, you'll also notice that the depictions on Greek pottery tends to match to some degree the purpose that they're being used for. 
Um, so you'll notice that, like, Amphorae tend to have really exciting scenes. Stuff with battles and chariots and horses and soldiers, because Amphorae is for wine, and wine is for drinking by me tough manly men at parties for tough manly men, where men are having drinking contests and talking about their old war exploits. By contrast, if you are running into a, say, Hydria, which is the sort of container that they would be using to carry water around, well, nobody drinks water. Like, women drink water, and women take care of water, and women use water for washing and stuff. And as a result, most of the Hydria have women on them. Women going to places and getting water. Um, the Greeks are very pragmatic that way. They depict on their pottery what the pottery is kind of supposed to be used for. Um, but we'll talk about that more as we go. Again, notice from the proto-geometric to the geometric, we have way more sophistication in the design here. We have these sort of wiggly patterns all throughout the, this particular amphora. We do, in fact, have some small, very small depictions of actual people in very stylized form here. Um, the design is considerably more sophisticated, considerably more complicated than we saw with the proto-geometric stuff from the Dark Age. And notice this one over here, we actually get like full-fledged depictions. Here's some horses and people on chariots, and here's some random animals hanging around. Um, we have random ladies standing at the top, presumably because they are the ones pouring the wine at these particular events. Um, this is, again, fairly typical, and you'll notice that we are at this sort of intermediary point between the proto-geometric, very sort of crude works of the Greek Dark Ages and the really sophisticated stuff to come. Um, but that said, we should also emphasize that we occasionally do have some fun stuff in here as well. Um, if you read our chapter on Greek society, you probably ran into the reference to Nestor's Cup, um, this is one of the coolest archaeological finds, in my opinion, and I've run across it several times in my studies for this class. Um, this is a cup. Yep, that, that's it. it. It's just a cup. Like, calm down. It is, in fact, really small. Like, it's hard to sort of get a sense of it, but it is, in fact, small. It's got the two handles for drinking. Um, notably, it was found at a, like, tomb site along with the body of someone who we assume was a 10 to 14 year old. And therefore, we can assume that this was a kid's cup and not just, like, a regular cup. Like, we'll see some grown-up cups uh, later on in our discussion. Um, but importantly, this is a kid's cup and it is written on. Like, there's an inscription. Namely, this is... I am the cup of Nestor, good for drinking. Whoever drinks from this cup, desire for beautifully crowned Aphrodite, will seize him instantly. Notice, this is actually a reference to a thing that was, in fact, in the Iliad. Um, you'll remember, like, it's this random little passage in, like, the doldrums of the book. I think it's, like, book 11 or 12, um, when all those warriors are getting, like, dragged back from the battlefield having been wounded, Nestor is sitting there drinking from his cup. And we even get this little side note from Homer where it's like, the cup of Nestor was so mighty that only Nestor could pick it up. Because it's Homer, and, like, he says that, like, six different times about six different articles. But this is kind of the weirdest and dumbest of the bunch. Like, really? Like... Nestor has the coolest cup ever. Like, I can believe it when Achilles' spear is too big for anyone to handle, or when Odysseus's bow is too powerful for anyone to string. But seriously, like, the cup of Nestor can only be wielded by Nestor. Notice, though, how this is sort of borne out in this cup here. Namely, that we have this cup that is designed for a kid, and the cup says on the cup, I am the cup of Nestor. So you feel like a badass Homeric hero every time that you drink from this cup. 
Um, much as this is, you know, way less obvious a reference than many of the sort of like vases and pottery that clearly depict uh, episodes of the Trojan War, the indication here is that the Iliad in some form was current in the 8th century. Um, so current, in fact, that they are putting these inscriptions on a kid's cup to make them feel awesome when they pick up the cup of Nestor, the super awesome cup that only Nestor was strong enough to carry. Like, it's silly, I realize, but just think about the situation here, like what the culture has to be doing in order for this to be a thing. Like, I remember when I was a little kid, I went to the circus once. Because circuses were a thing in the 90s, and we didn't know how terrible they were. Or rather, we kind of didn't care because, I don't know, it was the 90s. Don't read into it. Like, I know that 90s is a thing here in the 2020s. Like, everybody's watching Rugrats again, and everybody's watching Hey Arnold again. And more power to you. 90s cartoons were awesome. Um, but nonetheless, we were very backwards in very much of our thinking. But anyway, I had this cup. That I got from the circus that came with like cotton candy in it. And it was awesome because the handle of the cup was like the tail of the tiger curling up. And I felt like a badass every time I drank my milk from it. Like this is a thing that kids do. And a culture that develops cool stuff for kids is a culture with considerably more economic stability and power than we've seen from a lot of the Greek Dark Ages. The archaic world represents a sort of renaissance, a sort of new rebirth of the Minoan and Kykladic and, and Mycenaean cultures that we've seen before. The, the sophistication that we saw before the Dark Ages is back, baby, with a vengeance. And what's more, we're seeing that it's getting playful here. You know, you can make your fancy cups with all of their supposed epic heritage for kids as well. Because kids are listening to these myths. Kids value the, her the legacy of Nestor. Kids identify with the these cool, awesome heroes the same way that somebody today might be really excited about getting a Batman cup. Or, you know, the cup of Superman that only Superman can lift. Like, also notice that this is weirdly sexual. You know, for a 10 to 14 year old, whoever drinks from this cup desire for beautifully crowned Aphrodite will seize him instantly. Like, the Greeks were way cooler about being upfront with their issues of sexuality with their kids than we were in all likelihood. Um, take that as you see. Like, that's a question that I definitely am not equipped to answer at this particular time, though. You know, I've talked about it at length in some of my other classes. Um, be aware that, like, the sort of paranoia about exposing innocent children to sexuality too early in their development was not a thing in the ancient world at all like at all very much a development of the 18th through the 19th centuries in our world like thousands of years after this was a thing kids would have been very aware of sexuality people would have been naked and probably having sex around them pretty regularly um, you think that scarred you as a child? Well, I guess when you're familiar enough with it as a child, it stops scarring you or something. Who knows? Moving on. In the 7th century, we see an increased sort of uh, interconnection between the Mycenaean world and the sort of other trading organizations, especially from Anatolia and the ancient Near East, like Palestine and Egypt and so on and so forth. And as a consequence, you will see that Greek pottery and Greek artistic designs are increasingly copying 
the style and structure of the Babylonians, of the Hittites, of the Egyptians. Um, and we see more and more emphasis on figures rather than geometric patterns in the various amphorae and other, you know, pottery that we see. So here we have an ulpe, and I don't know what an ulpe is. I, I'll just, like, shoot straight with you here. I, you know, have only limited knowledge of the various forms of, of Greek like pottery and from what i understand many of these terms seem to have very specific uh purposes in the literature which many archaeologists have not been able to identify like amphora you'll notice the last amphora we looked at with all the chariots and stuff was a funeral amphora so might have been you know wine storage for when people die in which case you know we've got like that funeral procession up at the top um, here we have an ulpe, which is obviously for pouring, just based on the design, clearly something approximating a pitcher here. But notice the decoration, all of these, you know, black, like, animal figures, um, many of which would have also been very rel or easily found on, you know, Hittite pottery and stuff like that. We also see the same thing here on this Skyphos, and a Skyphos is a grown-up cup, like... Again, notice how similar it is to the Cup of Nestor, but also bigger because grown-ups. Um, here we have not just animals, but also some human figures. Um, now sort of in and among the animals. We did see some very stylized, very sort of like rough human figures on those earlier amphorae in the last slide. But nonetheless, it's getting more and more sophisticated as we go along. Um, likewise, around the 7th century, we start seeing a, an increased interest in temple building in the ancient Greek world. The archaic Greeks are really the first ones to build these sorts of communal temples. Like, again, the major architectural feature of the Minoan and the Mycenaean world, and even to some degree the, the Hittite world when it was obviously interacting with them, were those megarons, the big palaces, the big communal rooms where people would, like, apparently hang out you know, eat, drink, have big meetings, so on and so forth. Um, now we're seeing an increased num number of devoted temple structures. Um, and this is sort of the earliest time that we are seeing these things happen. So again, that's another sort of anachronism in Homer's writing, namely that, you know, there weren't devoted temples to Athena in all likelihood uh, in the Troy of the 14th century BCE. That probably wasn't a thing that existed, but something that Homer was sort of reading into the culture based on his own experience. By contrast, here in the 7th century BCE, we're seeing a lot of new temple structures. Um, this is the Temple of Poseidon at Isthmia, um, just outside Corinth. We don't have a whole lot of it standing yet, obviously, but it is clear where the foundations were set. Most of these very early temples were likely constructed out of wood, which is why they don't survive. Um, you'll notice that these classical pillar structures are very typical of this kind of temple. And by the end of the 7th century and into the 6th, we're seeing those same wooden temple structures being replaced with stone. Which means they are surviving, and we do in fact have some pretty good idea of what they look like, because many of them are still standing. So this is the Temple of Apollo at Corinth, again just down the road from the Temple of Poseidon. Um, but notice that it is a hundred years afterwards. So clearly during this archaic period we're seeing a lot of early temples being constructed. 
Now, the big ones, the ones that you're probably familiar with, if you're familiar with Greek temples at all, stuff like the Parthenon, um, is more typical of the classical period, i.e. after this archaic period. Not many archaic temples survive, and from what we can tell, not a whole lot of temples were built during the archaic period. Um, this was a fairly new development in the culture, not something that had existed in the Dark Ages as far as we can tell, where if it did, it was way cruder and destroyed very thoroughly. Um, we don't have anything left, in short. Um, by contrast, again, in the Archaic period, we're seeing this increased focus on these temples. We're seeing more of these religious locations sort of being built um, now that the palaces and the private sort of temples are, are not nearly as important as they used to be now that you do have specific places where you go to perform your sacrifices or to perform these things. Um, so keep that in mind. Like, again, temple structure is also proceeding apace during this archaic period and probably did not predate it by a whole heck of a lot here. Um, but this obviously brings us to the major milestone in Greek pottery. The stuff that, again, if you've ever been in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you probably recognize because it's really famous. Um, there are tons of these black figure pots and pottery throughout the Mycenaean and ancient Greek world, uh, starting very much at this late stage in the archaic, or archaic period, which, again, you'll notice um, these earliest sort of black figure pots with all the detail and stuff, date back to the 7th and 6th century, respectively. Um, and notice that these black figure pots also devote or are devoted to major mythic events. Um, like up here, we have Heracles stabbing Nessos the centaur. Again, Heracles just had it out for centaurs, I guess. Um, although, to be fair, Nessos did try to rape his wife, according to the myth as told by Apollodorus. Um, so Heracles definitely had legitimate beef there. Um, likewise, the figure down in the bottom part of the pot, which is largely worn away and kind of hard to identify, probably Perseus. Um, although I'm not entirely sure why that is the case. I just have been told this by Wikimedia, so we'll go with that. Um, over here you can see a fairly typical battle scene, in this case between Heracles and Geryon. Um, Heracles, happily, is one of the most recognizable figures on Greek pottery. Um, you'll notice, like, he almost always has this lion's cowl around his face, um, according to the myth of Heracles. Like, the first major labor that Heracles had to undertake was to slay the Nemean lion, who had an impenetrable hide. Um, and Heracles did this by, like, strangling him, like, grabbing him, and then just, like, choking him to death in a cave, and then somehow skinned him. Don't ask me how, still not sure about that one. Um, but then he wears it from now on. And you'll frequently see Heracles depicted on these black figure pots and elsewhere and frescoes and so on, wearing the cowl of the lion. And you can see like the dead lion's eyes and nose over his face and the face is peeking out of the lion's mouth. Um, again, Heracles, super awesome hero. Greeks love him to death. Most famous hero of the Greek world. Homer refers to him often in the Iliad. He shows up on pots all the time. Um, you'll also notice he's fighting Geryon. This is one of the various uh, labors of his, like he has to kill Geryon and take all his cows, because again, cows. Um, in all likelihood, this is probably Athena back here. She is usually depicted behind heroes, helping them out as they are doing their various heroic deeds. 
Um, so again, like we're seeing whole myths being represented in these black figure pots in a way that is much more sophisticated than we saw in many of the earlier geometric designs and, and early archaic period. Um, likewise, we see many other sorts of battle scenes. Here we have Athena wearing the Aegis, the one that Zeus gives her for a while in the Trojan War and the one that she frequently carries around with her. Um, you can tell it's the Aegis because you'll see that it's all it's got all the snakes on it from Medusa's head. Uh, she wears Medusa's head on the Aegis, like you can see the face right down here. Um, and this is important because, again, when she wields the Aegis, when she wields the giant shield, or uh, as it's represented here, the, the armor, um, it immediately, like, turns people to stone and or drives them insane and they run away screaming, um, as happens in the Odyssey 22, I believe. Um, likewise, we here see just a legit battle scene over here. Again, as we would frequently see in Homer, the two guys both carrying spears, uh, likely throwing them at one another, as you can see with this guy in the back, um, carrying their shields and trying to defend themselves that way. Um, notice, though, that we didn't see a lot of that before this period. Like, as much as we did see some sophisticated depictions of people and chariots in the Minoan and the Mycenaean world, they were very rarely fighting in such dramatic poses, so dramatically with one another. Um, either they weren't interested in war back then, or that's not what war looked like to them back then. Um, I should emphasize that as much as, you know, Homer describes this sort of, like, you know, first the one guy throws the spear, and then the other guy throws the spear, and then they pick up the rocks, and they fling the rocks at each other. Like, as much as that is a very typical scene of Homeric writing, notice that it is depicted more and more after Homer than it is before Homer. The celebration of these myths, and especially the Homeric tradition, seems to be something that is coming after the tradition is well-established and well-developed. The stories either didn't exist before Homer, like before the Greek Dark Ages, when they were in fact taking place, or alternatively, they weren't being celebrated artistically. Again, this is one of the great ambiguities in this whole business of archaeology. As much as we are looking at this stuff and saying, hey, look, they fought with spears, that could be the case. Or it could be the case that this is just, you know, people depicting their favorite story on the side of a pot. Um, it could be that they care about this story more now, or it could be that the story didn't exist until now. There's a lot of sort of uncertainty about what was going on in those 300 years that we were just looking at, you know, designs and circles and squares and random people carrying pots from places on their various pots. That's kind of what I want to emphasize here. I want to stress that as much as Homer is a huge force in the Greek culture, he doesn't really start to show his power, his cultural sort of weight, until this late period in the development of Greek culture, as we are approaching the classical period in the last century of the Archaic period. Likewise, here it gets super obvious that we are making direct references to Homer. On the one hand, we did see Nestor's cup, and that's really cool, but it could be that it's derived from Homer, or it could be that it's derived from the tradition surrounding Homer, or it could just be, you know, we've heard of Nestor and Nestor is cool, so here's his cup. Um, by contrast, here we are seeing deliberate scenes very much depicted in the Iliad being shown on various works of art. 
Like over here, we have this black figure, Lakethos. Again, Lakethos was a mixing uh, jar or jug, as far as I remember. Um, and therefore, you know, you would have poured wine and other materials into the jug in order to get them all mixed up and ready to be served. Um, notice this is straight up Athena dr or Achilles dragging the corpse of Hector behind his chariot here. Um, this is very much a scene from the Iliad as we have it. It could be that there was a tradition of Achilles killing Hector and dragging his body around before the Iliad. Absolutely, we'll talk about that in a moment. But nonetheless, it's obvious that we are now celebrating specific stories, specific myths, specific parts of this whole Trojan epic cycle, uh, however it exists at this point in time. Likewise, over here, as much as it is much harder to make out what is going on, this is in fact a depiction of the scene where Poseidon shows up and is gearing up all of his stuff in, uh, in Iliad 13, I believe, as he's getting ready to help out the Greeks. Like, here are all of Poseidon's, like, henchmen and goons getting his horses ready to march. Um, so this is, I should also mention, a Kylix. Which Kylexes are really awesome, and I'm going to tell you a story about Kylexes because Kylexes are really awesome. Um, this is like the one form of Greek pottery that I actually know shit about. Um, the Kylex was a drinking cup. And when I say drinking cup, I mean like a drinking of wine cup. Like the other cups that we've seen aren't nearly as ceremonial. The Kylex, you would specifically have bunches of Kylexes hanging around. So when your guests showed up, you would pour wine into these Kylexes and everybody would have their own Kylex. Um, occasionally you would share them. Like, again, notice that they're two-handed and the handles are really large. Um, this is because, again, they're very heavy and when filled with wine, they're even more heavy. Uh, but you would take both hands and you would, like, tip it up to your mouth with, like, the lip of the Kylix being where you would drink from. Um, and importantly, like, the base of the Kylix would often also be decorated, often with, like, especially in classical Greece when they're getting a little bit more irreverent, um, like, with funny faces or mustaches, so it looks like you have a mustache when you are drinking from your Kylix. Um, again, the Greeks are kind of silly and childish in that respect. Um, but Kylixes were ceremonial. Like, as much as this is for drinking parties, drinking parties were ceremonial. Remember how many times throughout the Iliad and the Odyssey like, somebody is drinking to the gods, or drinking with his buddies to the gods. Um, drinking competitions and drinking festivals, like the Symposia of Plato, for example, um, these are all simultaneously social gatherings and sort of social celebratory events, drinking parties with drinking games, and also usually religious ceremonies devoted to Dionysus or other gods. Um, all of these things coexist. Everything is ceremony, everything is ritual for the Greeks, even the things that we would consider mundane and secular now. Um, so in addition, you would also have this game with the Kylex, where once you had drunk most of the wine, all of the sediment and crap that you don't want to drink, because again, wine is not how you imagine wine today. There was usually crap in it because the Greeks did not have terribly sophisticated sifting methods the way that we do today. It wasn't all liquid. Um, like, let me tell you about beer sometime and what beer would have looked like prior to the refining processes of like the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, there would be all this crap left at the bottom of the of the Kylex and you like it would collect in a sort of specific little hole that they had designed just for this purpose. And what you would do is you would take the handle of the Kylex and you would like flip it and try and hit a target or something like they would have, you know, somebody's face on the wall and you would like throw crap, wine crap at it. 
um, and whoever got closest to the mark would win and presumably had to drink again. Um, so all this to say, the Greeks had really elaborate uh, wine drinking rituals, and the Kylix was very much central uh, to all that stuff. So yeah, pots can be cool, kids. Like, know your pots. Um, anyway, moving on. Let's talk now and, like, put all of this together. Like, now that we have gotten right up to the edge of the classical period, which we will talk about next time and next week as we sort of talk about, like, how the Greeks interpret Homer and how the Greeks sort of carry Homer's legacy into their most sophisticated golden age period, let's back up and talk about what we've talked about today. Again, Homer is writing in the 8th or 7th centuries, before all of that black figure pottery, um, probably contemporaneous with something like Nestor's Cop or the like geometric designs of the early Archaic period, well after the Minoan, Kykladics, and Mycenaean period that we talked about early on in this lecture. Um, I want to sort of connect all this to the stuff that we've been reading in the Cambridge Companion to Homer. Um, for today, at this point, you should have read the uh, articles on epic as genre um, for last time, specifically connecting the epic to other epic traditions across the world, um, specifically those that were distinct from the tradition that Homer is drawing from, like the Guslars of the, the like Slavic countries or the big Mongolian uh, epics that were like millions of lines long and still remembered in incredible detail, um, or the giant like African epics, which, you know, the guy was like, why would you ever recite all of this at once? Um, the Homeric epics definitely belong to their own tradition, as we saw in the, the essay, The Epic Tradition in Greece. Um, and I also want to sort of take apart the differences between Homer's epics and the details that Homer describes in his epics and where they line up as far as the time period is concerned. So we're going to talk about, on the one hand, the stuff that we find in Homer, the stuff that's detail in the Iliad or the Odyssey, and then where it seems to belong as far as the historical record is concerned. So, for example, the business of individual cremation. Like, throughout the Iliad and the Odyssey, we see several times important dead people get cremated, not buried. Um, this was likely unique to the archaic Greek world. We very, very rarely find Bronze Age cremations. Again, usually people are buried en masse in giant group tombs rather than individually cremated or individually honored. Um, unless they were especially wealthy, and even then, it's not necessarily connected to their prowess in battle. So when Homer is talking about cremation, he's likely importing an 8th century or 7th century idea, something that was much more common in archaic Greece, to the ideas that would have been in the Bronze Age. Again, as much as we need to recognize that Homer is a product of a tradition, that the record that we have written down by Homer or his contemporaries or the Homeric tradition, however you want to understand it, um, we have to recognize that the tradition that goes all the way back to, you know, the Dark Age and beyond probably didn't get the details right or Homer is taking some pretty obvious license with them. He is making this poem more accessible to his listeners at his time rather than trying to, you know, actually represent accurately the historical world of the late Bronze Age. Um, likewise, you'll notice, again, in Homer we have this rigorous hierarchical structure. Uh, the kings and lords are very much over above all of the common folk. 
Um, Sarpedon has his whole speech about the reason why he's wealthy is because he risks himself in battle because he has greater courage and strength than the average person under his command. Um, likewise, when we see Odysseus hanging around in Ithaca, we note the very severe hierarchical structure there. Um, Penelope is holding down the fort in lieu of Odysseus the king being gone from Ithaca, and all of Odysseus's various servants and slaves and so on and so forth. Um, everybody who was in his household was very strictly subservient to him and to his family. Um, this rigorous kingship sort of organization was, again, not something typical in the Bronze Age. According to those Linear B texts that we found, uh, power was very much shared and organized in a way very atypical of the way that Homer is talking about it. Homer is, again, talking here about 8th century practices, practices that would have been typical in archaic Greece based on what we've seen of the way that the certain burials and cremations are prioritized above others, the way that like just households, the oikos is sort of structured. Um, the Megaron form that it was very typical of the Minoan and Mycenaean period is very much not the way that the Greeks nowadays are sort of organizing themselves. Um, we do not have that sort of decentralization. Instead, the what we would have once called palaces are, which actually turned out to be, you know, very communal structures, have given way to what are actually palaces, grand estates, housing a lord or a king or something of that nature, much as we see it in uh, the Odyssey and the Iliad. By contrast, the war chariots that we see frequently discussed in Homer, like again, Patroclus rides his chariot into war, and then when he dies, the horses like supernaturally bring the chariot back for Achilles to ride into war. Diomedes does all of his exciting action in Book 5 from his chariot. This wouldn't have been something in archaic Greece. Um, like, notice all those pots and stuff that we see, very rarely do they depict chariots, and when they do, they are usually associated with a myth of some kind. Um, the more we get closer to the classical world, the less evidence of chariots being a normal way of going about your business seem to be. Chariots in war were frequently depicted back in the Minoan or the Mycenaean period, or at the least, we see a lot of chariots being depicted in those Mycenaean frescoes, um, even if they're not being used for war. But in the archaic world, this would have been something weird, something that harkens back to the Bronze Age. This is something that the uh, people listening to Homer would have considered exotic and old-fashioned. Um, but at the same time, you'll notice that the way that Homer or depicts it isn't necessarily in sync with the way that it tends to be depicted in the ancient world. So it's clear that Homer knows that chariots were very prevalent in the Bronze Age. That tradition has been passed down. Um, but at the same time, he doesn't know exactly the details. That's an embellishment. That's something that he adds to this story. Um, likewise, the palaces, the Megarons, the fact that Prime and Odysseus do have these big, like, central rooms where lots of people hang out together, um, this would have also been an anachronism, something that would not have existed in archaic Greece. Like, as much as the hierarchical structure is, in fact, a thing about ancient Greece, the fact that Odysseus would have had, like, a really rich estate, you know, that's something that is more typical of the estates in the archaic world, Homer is aware of these giant structures being the sort of center of these estates. 
you know, Odysseus has his major meeting room where all of the all of the suitors congregate. Priam has that central courtyard that sort of links on to all of the individual houses. Homer is aware that these are old styled structures, structures that would not have existed today, presumably because people aren't wealthy enough to actually build them the way that they did once upon a time. Although Homer is unaware of the fact that in fact these structures were communally designed and built. The Megarons of Priam and Odysseus are therefore purposed inappropriately, according to Homer. What he sees as evidence of lavish wealth, of great accomplishment, and therefore must be the providence of one dude, one really important king, instead were likely built communally, designed communally as a communal space for lots of people to go about their business, not just one king. So while the the construction, the building, is accurate to the Bronze Age, the use is inaccurate. Again, a sort of error on Homer's part, or an association that Homer would have associated with his present time rather than the distant past. Um, the temples that we see fairly regularly in the Iliad and the Odyssey, like, again, Hector dispatches his mother to go pray at the Temple of Athena to get Athena off their back. Um, or the way that Odysseus will frequently show up at temples in his various journeys. Um, maybe not that frequently. Again, civilization is kind of something that Odysseus does not have access to a lot of the time. Um, these temples were, again, not something that you would have seen in before the Dark Ages. Remember that the earliest evidence of these uh, temples that we have actually occurred in the middle of the Archaic period, in the 7th and 6th centuries. Um, especially those big stonework temples. Um... Now, Homer is probably importing his own assumptions about the way that religion is conducted uh, in the, you know, archaic world and sort of taking that and adding it to um, the, the Bronze Age world, either from ignorance or because he is, you know, just sort of like trying to familiarize this with his audience. Um, the goods, the random swag that people have, all the fancy jewelry and stuff and the obvious evidence of like people hanging out with each other and trading with each other, that's very much dependent on the Phoenician trade and all those trade ships that are hanging around the Eastern Mediterranean and the Aegean, something that would not have existed until 1000 BC at the very earliest, so once again after the Trojan War. Much of the swag, much of the sort of like gold and silver, the stuff that, you know, Achilles puts on display as the prizes for the various competitions, all of these are anachronisms, do not belong to the Bronze Age so much as they would have been prevalent to the archaic listeners and being symbolic of their wealth and prominence to the archaic listeners. Um, so all that to say, again, Homer seems to have a very rough idea of what the Bronze Age in fact looks like in comparison to his own Iron Age. Um, I, on the one hand, that could be because he doesn't know better. Again, he's just ignorant of the situation. He doesn't know what actually was going on in the Bronze Age, and that's probably true. Um, some of it, though, could have been passed down through the epic tradition, and this may inform us about the limits of the epic tradition itself. What the epic tradition gets right and gets wrong um, which we can see through Homer, may be an indication of how old the epic tradition actually is. Um, if, in fact, we get some important details like this incorrect, perhaps the epic tradition is, in fact, considerably younger than we might have reason to think. Because, again, so much of it was transmitted orally, we can't very well put a good time on when it, in fact, started. Alternatively, Homer might be making deliberate artistic decisions here. 
Um, again, since the 90s are current, I guess I can use this example, but back when the Batman animated series was a thing in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, it was very much a sort of non-time period, like vague sort of arc deco art style. On the one hand, there were inventions that would not have made sense until like the 1970s or 80s or 90s. On the other hand, there's a very clear sort of indebtedness to the 1950s art deco art style and before. That was a deliberate choice. Um, it very much creates a world of Gotham City that is out of time and place, that doesn't have a particular sort of obvious cultural touchstone as far as a certain like location in time. It's possible that Homer's doing the same thing here, that the Greek world that he is describing in the Iliad and the Odyssey was kind of a blend of a wide variety of cultural touchstones that Homer is just sort of mixing and matching for his own purposes. It could be that the Greece of Homer just never existed and was never intended to exist, that this is all style on Homer's part. So again, different archaeologists, different classicists will come to different conclusions about what these anachronisms mean. But the general sort of takeaway here is that Homer doesn't get the details right. Um, and the Iliad and the Odyssey that we read about is in fact a sort of idealized version of his own history. In the same way that, you know, Batman is an idealized version of the 1950s or 60s or what have you. Um, but let's take a look at that Greek epic tradition as well. Um, again, between our two essays on the epic as genre and the, the sort of like Homer and the Greek epic tradition, we get a lot of discussion of what the actual epic is about. And I want to just sort of collect a lot of that here, um, especially the stuff about the, the Homer and the Greek epic tradition. And I should stress first and foremost that this is old, like really old. There is evidence, especially between the connections, uh, especially because there are connections between Greek epics and Sanskrit epics, like Indian epics, the Vedas, and so on and so forth. Um, the suggestion is that there are, in fact, a sort of underlying epic tradition. Um, so some of the obvious comparisons between the Greek and Sanskrit epics includes the connections between, you know, Heracles, the most important Greek hero, and Indra, an important hero of the Sanskrit epics, as well as there are some obvious connections between Achilles and Arjuna, which again, I'm just quoting our textbook here. I haven't actually read the Vedas or the Hindu epics, so I really don't know on this one. It's on my reading list, but... You know, there's only so much time in the day for me to spend reading stuff that I just feel like reading instead of stuff for class. Um, suffice it to say that the suggestion that there are these two disparate cultures with oddly similar epic traditions, and that these cultures have also been identified as being linked by their linguistic oddities, again, like many linguists and, and sort of archaeologists and investigators of the way that language works have argued that there was this proto-Indo-European language and culture, um, some sort of people group that extended all the way as far west as like the Celts in Ireland on the one hand, all the way east to the Hindus and India and the Indus River on the other. Um, the suggestion is not just is the language connected, but their culture is connected as well. And in all likelihood, there was an epic tradition in the Proto-Indo-European world, something that gave rise to both Heracles on the one hand and Indra on the other, Achilles in Greece and Arjuna in India. Um, however, the Greek tradition also seems to rely pretty heavily on its Semitic origins. 
There are a lot of connections between, say, Hesiod's writings in the Theogony and the Works and Days and the Enuma Elish, the great Babylonian epic, um, as well as some pretty obvious connections between Heracles, the major Greek hero, and Gilgamesh, the major Babylonian hero. Um, it's pretty clear that the Greek sort of epic tradition grew out of both the Indo-European tradition, which extends all the way to India, as well as the Semitic tradition, again, a separate language group, a separate cultural group, um, but one that the Greeks undoubtedly would have bumped into, especially as they had more and more truck with the Anatolians. Again, the Hittites, the Babylonians, they were all Semitic languages and Semitic, uh, Semitic traditions and would have had Semitic sort of connections. By Semitic, we should also emphasize that this is also like the language and culture that brings us the Old Testament. Um, so... Again, we have two very distinct cultures and cultural identities bumping into each other here, and the Greeks borrow from both because they are the inheritors of both. Um, they are borrowing some from this Proto-European or Proto-Indo-European tradition, which probably gives us certain elements of the way that these things are perceived. Um, most like classicists and linguists would argue that Zeus is a very typically Proto-Indo-European type god. Uh, many of the Proto-Indo-European gods or like king gods are also associated with like sky and thunder and things like that. Um, whereas Poseidon probably has more or some of the gods, probably not Poseidon. Poseidon is probably homegrown to be honest. Um, like there are connections to Indo-European sea gods, but also like the whole cycladic world seems to attribute earthquakes and horses to Poseidon which is something that the Indo-Europeans wouldn't have done. Um, by contrast, like Demeter or Hera seem to have a lot of clear connections to Semitic fertility goddesses, um, which are very prevalent throughout the Canaanite world, the Babylonian world. Um, like Ishtar especially seems like an obvious analog to, to, to Hera. Um, like it's clear that both traditions are sort of meeting and fusing in this Greek uh, world and position. Um, but I should also emphasize that there are also a lot of Greek epics in their own right. Greek epics that we've lost. Like the Iliad and the Odyssey are obviously, obviously these major important and influential works of Greek culture and literature. And they have survived surprisingly well for, you know, close to 3,000 years of history. Um, however, the suggestion from a number of Greek scholars and writers is that there were, these were just a number of epics among a long and storied epic tradition, some of which surrounds the Trojan War, but many of which do not. So, for example, there was almost certainly, like, we have the Hesiodic tradition. That one is, in fact, there, although calling it a, an epic is a little rough and, and probably a bit, you know, generous on my part. Um, but there was an almost certainly a Heraclean epic tradition, like an epic of Heracles. You know, Homer refers frequently to the various exploits of Heracles. Many mythic traditions, especially Apollodorus, uh, talk about the labors of Heracles. Um, it would make sense that he would have his own epic at some point in history, something that both Homer and, and these other myth writers are, are drawing from. Um, likewise, there is probably an Oedipal an Oedipus uh, epic tradition, um, as well as a sort of broader Theban um, epic tradition, including Tiresias and his adventures, because Tiresias was very influential in both the story of Oedipus as well as the wars 
that take place uh, either to by Thebes or in attacking Thebes. Um, like there's a lot of data in the in Apollodorus about this major series of, of Theban wars, and we see references to it fairly frequently in Homer as well. Remember that like Achilles wrecks Thebes almost single-handedly at one point. It would stand to reason that he would be involved in you know some greater Theban tradition, even if most of the Thebiad, as we might call it, predates him. Um, we also have the Argonautica. Like, you'll notice that Homer refers to Jason and the Argonauts infrequently, but a lot of the Argonaut adventures show up, especially in the Odyssey. Um, like, the adventure with the sirens and the crashing rocks, which Odysseus opts not to visit, are both, like, major touchstones in the Argonautic uh, tradition. Um, many of these stories also have more modern interpretations. Like, in the classical Greek world and even into the Roman-ruled world, um, things like the Oedipal cycle of Sophocles or the Argonautica of um, Apollonius of Rhodes, I believe. Um, these epics do get later treatment. What I'm saying here, though, is that it is likely that there is an oral epic tradition predating Homer that he is drawing from here and that will go on to inspire these later written interpretations of these same epic traditions, something that is sophisticated in its own right as an oral tradition before we even get into like the classical merits or demerits of the tradition to come. Um, likewise, we do need to talk about the Trojan cycle. Um, in one of the Greek writers of the classical world, namely Proclus, he gives us great detail about how the Trojan cycle like existed in the various parts of the Trojan cycle. Um, and this is tough to sort of place in its own time. In all likelihood, Homer's epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, were part of this overarching Trojan cycle. Um, but at the same time, it's uncertain whether the cycle predates Homer or whether the cycle is indebted to Homer. We'll talk about that more because, again, our our writer here in the Cambridge Companion and the uh, epic tradition in Greece, Ken Dowden, is very much on the side of Homer's uh, epics sort of being part and dependent on this epic tradition and not the other way around. But we'll get back to that. Um, what we do have is this evidence from Proclus that there was at least some epic tradition, that other epics existed as part of this Trojan cycle beyond what Homer had to write in the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Iliad and the Odyssey were just part of those stories. And on the one hand, that's obvious. The Iliad starts in Medius Rest. The Trojan War is already underway and it doesn't end with the sacking of Troy, so clearly there's more tradition at stake here. You know, arguably the Iliad is kind of a weird choice for writing an epic about. Like, who the heck is this Hector guy and why do we care about him? Shouldn't this be the story of we landed on the shores of Ilium, we warred against them from ten years, and then we defeated them? Many epics would take that kind of scope into consideration. Um, so, with that in mind, let's talk about the whole thing here. Um, and the Trojan cycle very much starts with the Kypria of Stasinos, according to Proclus. There were 11 books devoted to the setup to the Trojan War, including all that business with the goddesses getting angry with each other, um, the rape of Leda by Zeus as Swan, giving, uh, conceiving Helen, um, the judgment of Paris, where he decides that Aphrodite is the most beautiful, and then the rape and abduction of Helen. Um, all of that 
stuff all the way up through like the Greeks getting their shit together to go to war. You know, Odysseus pretending to be insane and getting picked up by various people. Um, Agamemnon having to sacrifice Iphigenia and thus ruining his domestic situation. All the way up to landing at Troy, the first couple of skirmishes and battles, the first death. Um, Achilles sacking many of the local cities throughout the early years of the Trojan War. All of this would have been set up in the Kypria. Um, and notice the 11 books indicated here suggest that it's pretty dang long. Um, that like the Iliad would presumably be just one book in this long cycle. Um, likewise, once we get to the Iliad set up by the Kypria, we have the stuff after the Iliad, the Aethiopis of Arctinos of Miletos. Um, importantly, this is where Achilles kills the hero Memnon, who you'll notice doesn't even show up in the Iliad or the Odyssey, like he isn't even mentioned. Um, but our writer Dowden argues that the whole thing with Patroclus, like the fact that Patroclus goes to war and, you know, he kills Sarpedon, a major heroic figure, but is then killed by Hector, suggests the same arc as Achilles successfully killing the great Trojan hero Memnon, but then getting killed in return by Paris and his, you know, ill-shot arrow. Um, obviously, like, all of this is material for epic, but whether or not it predates the Homer or postdates the Homer, whether Homer is, Homer's Iliad is based on the Aethiopis and is sort of, like, including elements of the Aethiopis to sort of give the, the epic a greater scope to sort of encapsulate the whole Trojan conflict into one tiny component of the Trojan conflict, or whether the Aethiopis is just exists to sort of buttress Homer, whether the Aethiopis is copying Homer or Homer is copying the Aethiopis, it's not clear. Um, after the death of Achilles, obviously, we have the Little Iliad, which is probably the weirdest of the inclusions here. Um, four books going from Ajax's suicide to the gift of the Trojan horse, but not the actual execution of the Sack of Troy. Um, like, again, it's so weird where the cutoffs here are. The Aethiopis apparently ends with the death of Hylias or Achilles and then the games to try and decide who gets to carry off his armor. And then, like, the little Iliad immediately picks up with Ajax being upset and committing suicide. It's weird. Like, I, I don't, again, know exactly what the whole organization here is and why we're trusting Proclus as much as we are. But I do want to know more about it. Like, this is the stuff that I find myself researching more and more. Like, what is the epic tradition? You know, how does the Iliad and the Odyssey fit into it? What are the other fragments that we do have? Because we do, in fact, have chunks of the Aethiopis and the Little Iliad. Like, these things have survived in the writings of other writers. And the idea that, you know, like, they don't have some big, long predating oral tradition would just be weird but on the other hand it seems so obvious that like the Iliad and the Odyssey are kind of being built around here I don't know it's weird and we'll talk about it more in a moment um after the little Iliad we obviously get the sack of Troy of Arctinos um which you know it, it is what it says on the box like it's where Troy gets sacked and they divide up the spoils and they wreck the place and all that fun stuff um and then we get the returns by Hagius of Trozen, the five books where all the major Homeric heroes besides Odysseus managed to get home, including Agamemnon, Menelaus, Diomedes, 
um, little Ajax and his ill-fated adventure where he like gets his ship struck by lightning and then washes up on the rock and then insults the gods and gets struck by lightning himself. I will not stop telling that story. It's like my favorite return story from the whole cycle. Um, and then obviously this sets up the Odyssey. Like this is why in the Odyssey we get the story of like Menelaos and his adventures in Egypt and how he knows what the deal is with Odysseus um, and has only told Telemachus now that he's visiting. And then of course we get the Odyssey itself and then apparently the Telegoni of Eugemon of Cyrene. Yeah, I don't know. This is definitely the weirdest one on the list and even Dowden mentions how weird it is. But this is apparently the two books after the Odyssey when Telegon, the bastard son of Odysseus and Circe, like shows up to apparently like murder his dad. Um, you'll notice that this is included in Apollodorus. Apollodorus does try to summarize the whole like set here. Um, and in fact, that stuff that I told you to read at the very beginning of the class, where I said, read the whole story of the Trojan War from Apollodorus, in all likelihood, Apollodorus is tracing this epic tradition, the entire Trojan cycle start to finish. Um, but even in Apollodorus, you can notice that the Iliad and the Odyssey are especially robust. Um, obviously, every one of the epics on this list with the exception of like the Proto-Indo-European epics and the Semitic epics, which we do in fact have the ability to compare, they're all gone. We don't have any of them. We have summaries of them in works like Apollodorus, or we have retellings of them like we do in the uh, Argonautica um, the, by Ap Apollonius of Rhodes. We have interpretations, but not the original works. Homer survives from the archaic world in a much more robust and sophisticated form than any of these, especially the ones in the Trojan cycle, which we only have the word of Proclus and other later writers to say that they even existed. Um, clearly the Iliad and the Odyssey were on a level different from the rest of the works on this list for one reason or another. And on the one hand, it could be that Homer survived when the others didn't because he got preferential treatment, like uh, Aristotle especially, Dowden blames um, for like singing Homer's praises and thus getting the other works kind of disproportionately screwed. Um, alternatively, it could very well be that Homer really was just much better than they were. And that these other works like the Cypria, the Aethiopis, and so on and so forth were built by later and possibly inferior writers to fill in the gaps of a tradition that clearly existed in Homer's day and that Homer refers to often but which has not survived in nearly as uh, sophisticated and artistic and gorgeous a form as we see in Homer. Either Homer was a superior writer lending his artistic talent to a tradition that was well entrenched and thus elevating that tradition beyond the rest of the tradition itself, or alternatively, that tradition is secondary and Homer was there first. It's really hard to say. And again, this is something that I'm really keen to study because as much as I am not a classics guy and as much as my like intellectual academic upbringing is, in, is not in Homer but in philosophy, my philosophical interest is in the study of language and this is very much where my classics interests and my uh, philo philosophy interests intersect. Um, so yeah, you better believe someday I'm going to know way more about all this epic tradition and I hope to report it either in a podcast or something else once I get there. Um, for now though, keep all of this in mind. Recognize that Homer belongs to a tradition, a history, a culture that way exceeds him. 
On the one hand, we're not entirely sure what that role in this culture actually is. In the same way as we don't know whether Troy was a really important city or not so important a city. Clearly it was less significant than Babylon or Hattusa, but at the same time it seemed to be way more significant than any of the other coastal cities in Anatolia for reasons we don't quite understand or appreciate. Likewise, we don't know where Homer fits into this grand tradition. On the one hand, we have lots of Greek writers saying there is more than Homer. There's this whole Trojan cycle. There are all of these other epic traditions. And the evidence for that is pretty clear in the surviving fragments as well as what Homer himself writes. But on the other hand, we don't know what that means. Why is Homer the only thing that survived? Why, is, why do all of these other works seem secondary to the Iliad and the Odyssey? Less sophisticated, less like complete in their own right. Why did Homer survive and nobody else? Um, these are the sorts of questions that classicists are still wrestling with and probably will be wrestling with forever unless we somehow stumble across some like somehow overlooked text, which doesn't seem likely at this stage. Again, notice how fragmentary most of these archaeological expeditions and, and findings tend to be. Likewise, we are still trying to dig up the past and figure out what the heck was going on in Minoan and Mycenaean Greece, in the Dark Age Greek world, in the you know early Iron Age archaic period when Homer himself is actually drawing from. Much of our conclusions about the culture of the archaic world derive from Homer. And since we've seen that Homer is clearly embellishing, drawing on, you know, Bronze Age anachronisms as well as, you know, contemporary like Iron Age thinking, we can't be sure. How much of that is invention, how much Homer is, you know, making the social world of his day into something totally unrecognizable from what the actual social world of his day was. It's crazy complicated. And I hope that the last couple of lectures have given us an opportunity to see that, to recognize the great ambiguity and uncertainty surrounding these historical details and surrounding Homer's place in both the epic tradition and in the Greek culture generally. Um, so with that in mind, next time we move our attention to the classics and we talk about the Greek world after the Archaic period, the golden age of Greekdom. Um, great writers like Plato and Aristotle, like Sophocles and Euripides. We will in fact read Euripides' The Trojan Women, so get ready to do that because it's a bit long for, you know, one day's worth of reading. Um, we will talk about how this all fits together, and we will ask ourselves the question, who the heck is Homer anyway, um, as we move forward through Hellenism and towards the Homeric legacy in, into the future. Uh, I look forward to talking about it with you soon.